Hello and welcome to What's Next, the podcast where we explore the technology of tomorrow and what it means for us today. I'm Alicia Garabedian, your host this week. I'm an early stage investor at Samsung Next Ventures. On a recent episode, we introduced the Samsung Next Stack Zero Grant. Today, I'm speaking with one of the recipients, She256. Co-founder Alexis Gaba joins me now to talk about how they're increasing diversity in the blockchain space and why she's excited about decentralization. Welcome to What's Next, Alexis. Thank you so much for having me. So how did you hear about the Stack Zero Grant program? So Zubin and Aparna, who I work on Mechanism Labs with, um, met Ricardo in Berlin, and and that's kind of where I got to know about Samsung Next and what was going on. And then we started talking over Telegram, um, and that's kind of where I really you know found out about the program and absolutely an amazing opportunity. And and we definitely wanted to apply with She Two Fifty Six, and I'm so so glad that it worked out. Um, would love to learn a little bit more about you in your own words. I guess a little bit about myself in the context of the blockchain space. Um, I got into this space around a year and a half ago now. Um, and I was initially really interested in development. So um, I built a bunch of decentralized applications and did a bunch of hackathons. And it was a lot of fun for me to be able to explore in that way. Um, but I very quickly realized that a lot of the underlying infrastructure wasn't ready to support the kind of visions I had for these applications. They weren't accessible to the scale of people. Um, and that's when I got interested in research and what I could do to solve these core infrastructure problems. Um, and so that's when I met uh, Zubin and Aparna, and we started doing different research on proof of stake and distributed consensus. And that's really what, you know, drew me into this space. So along the same time, I was also, you know, going to all these hackathons and a lot of different events and trying to immerse myself in the community. And it became very apparent very fast, the massive gender disparity that existed. And so around then, that's when, you know, the idea for She256 came up. And when we got started there, um, it was an environment where I was, you know, the the ratios were kind of worse than in my CS classes, which I didn't really think was possible. Um, so it was really at that point that we knew we had to do something about that. So before um, we dive a little bit deeper, can you just tell us exactly what She256 is? So She256 is a nonprofit with the mission of increasing diversity and breaking down barriers to entry in the blockchain space. Um, so I guess like I was talking about before, we were going to different events and different conferences and kind of being involved in the space. And there was this one particular event in Berkeley where it was me and three others and um, and it was we were the, the only four women in this room of around like 60 to 100 men. Um, and this was far from the first time that this had happened. Um, and so we kind of got together after like, oh, my gosh, wow, there's another woman here. Um, and the four of us kind of got to talking. We had known each other previously and we we're like, this is crazy. We have to do something about this. And why do you think that is? I think it's a couple of reasons. So I think one um, the blockchain space as a whole is often seen as like a subset of computer science or a subset of technology. Um, and there is, you know, this large persisting problem of a lack of women in STEM. And this is an even more niche field within that. Mm -hmm. So I definitely think that's part of it. And then part of it is I think that it's often very intimidating to enter this space. There's a lot of jargon. There's a lot of strong opinions, um, which makes it difficult for people who are new to be able to kind of break in or feel comfortable voicing their opinions. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah. the four of you came together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we got to talking and we were like, okay, what can we do? How can we get other students involved in, in the space? We were initially just thinking, you know, what can we do on our campus? Maybe we could host a couple of events and, and see where that goes. But at that point, 
we thought, you know, why should we stop here? Why not go bigger? And that's when we decided to host our first annual conference. So this was around a 300-person conference hosted in Berkeley, featuring the research and innovation of, you know, the women who are already doing so much amazing work in the space. Um, you know, amazing cryptography research or economic policy, you know, so many things across the board. The lineup for the conference was amazing and I was so inspired by the work that these women had already done in this space. And that was really the goal of the conference, to bring people in by showing them the amazing work that women were already doing and to really showcase and highlight their achievements. That's kind of where we went first. And honestly, it was it was such an amazing experience. Um, it was really heartening to see all of the support from the community and the amount of people that came out and the amount of people that really cared um, and so everything around that conference was just such a wonderful experience. Mm-hmm. And so how has the initiative developed since then? You know, the conference in particular, that was our focus. And we were able to draw in a lot of industry professionals came, a lot of students came. Um, we had a scholarship program. So we flew in high school students from all around California who were able to attend for free. Um, and that was super cool because for a lot of them, it wasn't just their first blockchain conference. It was their first technology conference. And so getting to interact with them and, you know, see their excitement about this technology and they wanted to do more like this wasn't enough. Um, and so at that point, you know, looking at the support from the community, looking at how much more there was to be done, we decided to go from just a conference to developing this into a fully fledged nonprofit. And so that's kind of where we've been since we've been working on a whole host of different initiatives kind of stemming out from that initial conference. Wow, that's really impressive. So this on top of being a full-time student, uh, co-founder of Mechanism Labs, and maybe <laughs> having a personal life. <laughs> um, so now it has definitely evolved. Um, can you tell us more about the goals that you guys have for 2019? So our, our two core goals are really one, to raise awareness about the importance of diversity and inclusion within the blockchain space. And two, to bring people in who have never even heard about this technology before. Um, and we're tackling that in a couple of different ways. So one of our other big initiatives is our mentorship program. And we launched this this past fall. And the goal with the mentorship program was basically to make it less intimidating for new people to enter this space. So it was open to any female identifying individual and you know, people were participating from all across the board. So there were high schoolers all the way to people who were mid-career, you know, interested in blockchain, trying to make a switch. And each of these individuals was provided with a mentor in their specific area of interest. So whether that was blockchain and design or blockchain policy or whatever they were specifically interested in. And that has been absolutely amazing. We have 500 participants, 250 matches, and its mentors and mentees matched up, you know, from all across the world. So there'll be people able to, you know, understand perspectives from different parts of the globe. And it's been so cool to see again, how much people like were really open to open to giving back and open to sharing their wealth of knowledge and how much people really wanted to learn and wanted to take advantage of a program that provided them that opportunity. So I think there was another hackathon to bring this to high school students in underprivileged communities. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So we have a lot of other exciting initiatives coming up in 2019. And one of them is this hackathon. So this will be held on March 9th of this year. Um, and the goal here is for high school students who maybe never heard of blockchain before, maybe haven't really programmed that much before, to have an accessible way to solve real problems in the blockchain space. So the way we're framing this is as a UI UX design hackathon. So all of these students will be presented with a key design challenge in the blockchain space. 
they'll get to form groups. They'll get to, you know, hear from different speakers who have been in the space. So there'll be workshops from Scientina at Coinbase and Consensus. Um, and then they'll be able to work with mentors who are designers in the space to kind of solve these problems um, and understand from from like a user perspective how this technology impacts them and where they can make an impact. So we think it's a really accessible way to start to bring these these students in. Um, and I think it's really important to start from you know, the ground up in early ages. Like I've interacted with a lot of different high school students. It wasn't that long ago that I was in high school. And I think, you know, students at that age are just as capable, just as curious and just as interested. And so I think it's a perfect time to provide these opportunities. Mm-hmm. I think that's like the coolest thing about this space is it doesn't really matter what age you are, where you are in the world is accessible. Um, and the fact that you guys are bringing that to people here, underprivileged high school students and just granting access. So how can people learn about this hackathon? So the details are on our website. If you go to she256.io slash designathon, um, and signups are currently open for students. So if you know any student who might be interested, definitely direct them that way. Um, and we'll kind of be like live tweeting throughout the event on what the students are coming up with and what they're finding interesting and what challenges they're facing. And I'm personally really curious for a lot of them, this will be their first time interacting with things like MetaMask or Dai and just seeing like what those user flows are like for people who haven't interacted with these technologies before is also something that I think would be really, really valuable. So what are um, some of the bright spots in the ecosystem and the space that you're seeing in oh, 2019 sure. and beyond? Yeah, there are so many. The space is endlessly fascinating. There's more to learn than I can, you know, ever spend enough time to learn. Um, (laughs) Maybe let's start with, um, in the beginning, you talked about the infrastructure layer and kind of the building blocks of the infrastructure. So what are the pieces that you think are still missing from that? For sure. I mean, I think the first thing is still scalability, which is where we started working in the first place. As of today, I would say the most accessible smart contracting platform is Ethereum. Mm -hmm. And Ethereum still doesn't, you know, have those scalability guarantees. Of course, there are people working on all of these other solutions, but just looking at the state of the ecosystem today, that is still the case. Mm-hmm. And so I think until some of these other projects ship and until the developer platforms are robust enough that allow for also, you know, a very seamless smart contracting experience, you know, we'll still have this kind of scalability bottleneck. There's a lot of progress being made. Of course, it, it just takes time. So I'd say looking at the state of the ecosystem today, that's the key one. Um, but other than that, I mean, things like decentralized governance are still very young and new and experimental. And I think we're going to see a lot more growth there, you know, with things like MakerDAO um, and like the way that they are conducting their governance community. I think there's a lot we're going to learn from that um, in ways to continue iterating on decentralized governance, um, like privacy with all of these people developing libraries for things like snarks and starks and building up these initial primitives that developers can then use to build is going to be super, super important in terms of just incentivization. Like a lot of these protocols rely on incentivization and making sure that, you know, every actor is, is working with, you know, other actors in the system to achieve the desired outcomes and game theory as a, as a field itself is still so young. And so figuring out how to model these complexities is going to be important in a lot of these protocols that rely on that. And so I think there's still a lot of open work to be done there. Um, and then usability is, I think, huge. It's really important to make this technology accessible to real people. And so and solving real problems. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So for people who don't know, uh, can you just give us a brief description of Ethereum? 
wow, this, I guess the best way to describe it is as a smart contracting platform. So what that means is that I can go ahead and write any kind of logic. Um, so say I want to send a transaction, but instead of sending someone money, I want to send them like a non-fungible token. So like a collectible, like a crypto kitty or something like that. Um, that's something that Ethereum can enable, which is more than just a general payment transaction. And, and you can get really complex with your smart contract logic. So say I have this smart contract logic, then what I can do is deploy that to the Ethereum blockchain. And this distributed web of nodes located all across the globe will all execute that, that specific piece of logic or program that I wrote. And anyone can kind of poke these contracts to execute that code. So it's not like one person controls this logic or one person controls this code. This is code that exists all across the globe that anyone can use and interact with. And because Ethereum, you know, is a Turing complete language. So all that means is that it's, you have all of the functionality, say that you have with a programming language like Java. There's really a lot that you can do, um, in terms of the complexity of this logic. And we see this in a lot of different applications across the board. So we talked about the infrastructure is still kind of developing, but we're seeing these like on the usability side, these apps that are driving innovation in the, the lower part of the stack, or they're just kind of piecing together different protocols that can help enable their usability of their application. And so one is kind of driving the other, or the other is driving the other. So it's kind of this like push and pull relationship. So how do you see that evolving? And do you think that the vertical stack applications are going to be the future or does infrastructure really really need to catch up. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting problem. I think it's completely true. Everything in the space is kind of developing at the same time. Like you have your infrastructure developing at the same time as people are trying to figure out how this can be usable to users and what key problems it's solving. And I think it is going to end up growing simultaneously. People are going to keep working on these infrastructure components that are crucial. I think it's really important that more people, you know, go out and like user test and at least build versions of these applications that people can still use and interact with. And I think there are some really robust applications applications showing up in Ethereum that people are finding, you know, more accessible and are and are starting to use and are starting to get, you know, that early adoption. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? For sure. So I think like a couple of really interesting ones from my perspective are like Uniswap. I sent some ETH to my like 11 year old sister. <laughs> I was like, okay, just like play with it and like tell me what you think. And she was super interested. She was like, it's free money. Um, and, and so she, her first question to me was, why is this money changing every single day? Like, why is it so volatile? And I was like, I mean, that that's that's the way ETH works. And she's like, why can't it be stable? Um, <laughs> it's like, okay, well, eleven year old. I, I know. <laughs> um, I was like, it can be here. I so I just sent her the link to Uniswap, and I was I kind of wanted her to figure these things out for herself. Mm-hmm. So I just sent her the link, and I was like, okay, like make it stable. Um, and so then she kind of like looked through the different like currency options and she was able to convert like eats to die. And she was able to do this like relatively seamlessly. Like she set up her MetaMask account without having to ask me a question. Wow. Um, so things like that give me like a lot, a lot of like hope for, for how the space is growing and how people are really starting to care about usability. And, you know, for me, I was really curious, like, what if I, what if I just send some eats to someone who like wasn't familiar with it, what would happen? And I'm, I'm really curious to, you know, see more of these kinds of experiments and like 
people doing user testing and paying more attention to to the usability aspects. Yeah, UX and design. Yeah. Yeah. So aside from Uniswap, um, <laughs> what else are you excited about in the yeah. application space for Ethereum? For sure. Um, I think MakerDAO is, you know, really, really cool. Like they're pushing forward a lot of interesting research on like decentralized governance, formal verification, oracles. They've, you know, created something that a lot of people are building on top of that people can can really use. So there's like um, Instadap, which, you know, allows you to like borrow and open CDPs like very, very seamlessly. Um, I think there's Veil, which is really cool, which is, you know, the platform on top of Augur, which has made using prediction markets a, a lot more seamless. So I think there are really interesting applications. A lot of these um, are right now, I guess, in the decentralized finance space. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of these things are more accessible to real people. And that'll help give us an idea of what people actually want and like what their needs are. And I think there's also a number of of projects doing really cool work in emerging markets. So I'm so happy you brought that up. <laughs> yeah. So I know that UNICEF has been working with a lot of cool projects. Um, and I'm not as familiar with the specifics here, but they've been on the ground in a lot of these countries doing some studies. I know they've been playing around with like dye to make different transactions. And I know there was one application they built where they were trying to enable people to make payments. Um, but a lot of the people they were, they were trying to work with weren't able to use the application because of literacy issues. And so they had to completely design it so that it could be used by individuals who are illiterate and looking to those considerations and, and, and people kind of starting to do work in these spaces to understand what the real problems are for different groups of people, I think is going to be really necessary. And, and really, I'm excited to see the results there. Got it. So maybe this is a good segue. Um, aside from all this amazing work you do at She256, you also are co-founder of Mechanism Labs. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Um, so Mechanism Labs is a research initiative. Pretty much, you know, look at problems in what we've been doing so far has been scalability, distributed consensus, and usability, um, and to make all of our research open. Um, we are definitely like huge believers in like open source and, and that's a core value that we have. So our previous work has been on attack vectors and proof of stake and distributed consensus. But recently we've been, you know, also really interested in usability, um, and what that means for real people. So we've been conducting this field study in India to map out what the current payments landscape looks like, um, and what the cryptocurrency landscape looks like to understand where there could be key needs and, where cryptocurrency adoption, you know, could, could potentially happen. Like what are real problems that this can solve in that space? And so we're still pretty early on in that study, but it's been an, a really amazing experience being able to understand these key problems from the perspective of people there. Um, and then as we get further along, you know, we'll definitely like release all of the work and put out some blog posts that describe our analyses. And so how does, um, their use of cryptocurrency through payments um, differ from what they're currently doing or currently using? Yeah, the climate in India is definitely really interesting. The government doesn't recognize cryptocurrency as like a payments mechanism. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a pretty tight regulatory situation in that the RBI, which is the Reserve Bank of India, um, has banned any RBI-regulated entity for you know, allowing people to transfer into crypto. So what that means basically is that like right now, if I want to use Coinbase in the United States, you know, for example, I can hook up my bank account and then buy some cryptocurrency. But in India, I can't do that. 
Um, I can't because banks are regulated by the RBI. Mm -hmm. Um, What I can still do is things like local bitcoins or peer to peer um, where I can use like cash Mm -hmm. or directly connect with with someone else. Um, So that's still available. But because of this ban and because of this state of regulation, numbers of people using cryptocurrency or interested in cryptocurrency have definitely dropped, um, especially like if we look at just trading numbers. However, there is a very vibrant, you know, community of developers and people interested in blockchain technology. It's still very much in the early stages and still very much growing. Um, but there are definitely, I think, a lot of really interesting areas where blockchain and cryptocurrency could potentially be useful. Um, but right now, the regulatory environment is pretty unfriendly. Mm-hmm. Um, let's kind of bring it back to She256 um, and talk more about the 2019. Maybe you can list out the 2019 goals. For sure. So, um, yeah, I talked about our two key goals earlier, and I definitely love to list out kind of the initiatives that we're working on to make this possible. So a couple of, you know, key things for us are, um, the annual conference, the hackathon, um, for high school students. We're also going to be launching a series of boot camps for underrepresented high school students where we'll teach development and we'll teach blockchain fundamentals. And these will be happening, um, again throughout the first part of this year. Um, we're going to be doing a second iteration of our mentorship program towards mid to late 2019. And we've also just launched a newsletter, which comes out every week um, called She256 Fireside Chats, which interviews a woman in the space doing some really amazing work. And I love reading them. They're so much fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those are a lot of our key goals. We're also going to be trying to host, you know, smaller, more educational events. So definitely look out for those. Um, most of them will be Bay Area based just because that's where we're located. But we also love collaborating with different organizations globally. So there will be some more global events coming out. And if you're interested, interested in collaborating on a global event, definitely reach out to us. Um, and we're always open to, you know, different ideas and, and there's definitely going to be a lot more coming. We have, I think more ideas than we can execute on. So, um, <laughs> if you're interested in volunteering or interested in contributing, definitely shoot us an email at she256 at blockchain.berkeley.edu. What early exposure did you have that made you interested in following this path? Yeah, that's, that's definitely a good question. Um, I, I grew up in the Bay Area, so I was always surrounded by technology and people trying new things. And so I was really lucky in that that was my environment and that people were encouraged to think outside the box a little bit. I was definitely more, I guess, like my, my interests have always, have always been aligned, you know, around like economics or history. And like I, I formally studied Latin for five years. So like formally doing computer science was definitely very new to me. That's something that started probably around like maybe a year before I got into college. And that's when I I knew that I was somewhat interested in it and wanted to pursue it further. Um, But it was really important for me that I was able to, you know, reach out to people and have mentors and people who were able to really bring me in and and teach me. And that's definitely something that I think is so important. You know, I I care pretty deeply about the blockchain space and um, to be able to provide others with the resources to have mentors who can help them, you know, to get involved and, I think that's definitely something that's that's really important to me. Um, I also have two younger siblings, and I definitely try to indoctrinate them with all of this blockchain stuff. 
Um, but it's, it's fun to be able to like teach them and, and see, you know, the way things click and the way they, they understand things and to be able to bring that to more and more people is definitely something that, you know, I, I love doing. Tell us a little bit about your journey early on when you were um, learning more about computer science. Like, were you intimidated? Was intimidating different uh, than Latin? (laughs) Totally. Um, I guess, yeah, the way I got interested in computer science was because my high school had a programming requirement that I had to take. And so there were two options. There was normal programming and there was advanced programming. And um, the only prerequisite for the advanced one was you had to have taken a certain level of math. So I was like, okay, like, let me take the advanced one. should be fine. I ended up being like the only person in the class who hadn't been programming Java for a while. And so <laughs> it was super intimidating. Um, and it was, it was definitely difficult. Like I um, had a lot of catch up work to do and had to work like, you know, extremely, extremely hard. And how old were you again at this time? I was maybe 16 or 17. And so, yeah, it was it was a good experience for me. It was challenging, um, but I think that's partly why I liked it so much mm-hmm. because it really, really pushed me. And I, I think things that push me and challenge me are the things that I'm drawn to. Um, and so after that point, I was like, okay, well, now I want to take APCS and see how that goes. And so then I, I took that class. I was able to, um, you know, do, do like some CS in the real world. Um, and then that's kind of when I decided that that's, what I wanted to learn more about in college. Mm-hmm. And so for more non-technical people in the industry um, or in tech generally speaking, um, do you think that it is important for them to have a base level knowledge of computer science, especially for those who might be intimidated by it? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I definitely think that having computer science knowledge has been very valuable to me at least like it's it's informed the way I think about the world because it's just a different way of thinking about things it's given me a basis to think about problems in a very different way and given me this really powerful set of tools to be able to build kind of whatever I imagine Um, and so I really really appreciate that I think in general that it's definitely useful but I think it's also a personal choice I feel like nowadays people are like really, really like push, like you have to like have this baseline of computer science and you have to like know this and know that. And I think it's absolutely amazingly beneficial. And if you're interested in it, I highly suggest learning about it. And there are so many different facets, but I wouldn't undermine or underplay the value of, you know, a lot of these other areas or fields or skill sets. Like what? Um, I mean, you know, personally, like, I guess like some of my interests are in like the classics or like economics, um, and, you know, that set of knowledge is, is really valuable, like especially in the blockchain space, like having economists who can think about these game theory problems and and do it from like a rigorous academic point of view is so important. Um, or, you know, people like from the policy side or the legal side. So I think part of bringing people into the space is also bringing people in from all these different backgrounds and points of view. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks so much for your time today. Uh, I learned so much and um, thanks for being here. For sure. This was so much fun. And thank you for listening to What's Next. We release a new episode every other week, so be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. Just search for What's Next on your app of choice or go to samsungnext.com slash podcast. I'm your host, Alicia Garabedian. You can find me on Twitter at Alicia Audrey One, A-L-I-C-I-A-U-D-R-E-Y One. This episode of What's Next was produced by Rachel King, Laura Flynn, and Eliza Lambert, 
with Claire Mullen as sound engineer for Pod People. If you have any questions or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Get in touch on Twitter at Samsung Next or send us an email podcast at samsungnext.com.